1: So big news, the US is relocating our embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. Yeah. Just in time for Ben to go to
2: it's, um, Jerusalem. It's gonna be in Jerusalem next week. It's gonna be an interesting week. I yeah, bet.
3: well, the the State Department noted that it usually takes about three years to, you know, get permits for design and build a new embassy. So we'll see if anything is left of Jerusalem by the time But the The Trump Organization knows
1: how to get those permits through, man.
0: Come on. Exactly. This is the real estate prowess.
2: By the time anybody listens to this podcast, the speech will have been given, and uh, we will see if Jerusalem is a smoldering ash. (laughs) And Ben will not be here this week, but
1: we don't know that he has actually been killed in Jerusalem, so don't worry about that. So if you
2: don't – well, I've been – I'm – you know – The question is whether there will be a city to go to by the time I get there next week.
3: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, look, alarmism aside, I think we've seen a number of crises around Jerusalem in the last few years. I'm not necessarily expecting it all to explode. But I will say that if one's goal was to stoke tensions, one could hardly do a better job of teeing up your public statement to stoke tensions than the White House has done.
0: So Tammy congratulates the White House on their <laughs> and flawless execution, public diplomacy of their strategy. terrible,
3: terrible plan. Right? They've managed to upset everybody while accomplishing just about nothing. But they seem to be really expert at that.
1: More next week. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security: The When You're President, They Let You Do It Edition. <laughs> oh, that oh. makes me so sad, Shane. I'm Shane when the, Harris. Harry's when you're sad a reporter.
2: star, they let you obstruct justice. <laughs> when, the,
1: when the president obstructs it, it's not justice. When the
2: president does it, it's not sexual harassment.
3: And it's not obstruction. Right.
2: I think we, there's some mix of these.
1: I want to be president.
2: It's good so to be you the vote king. For you? Yeah, right? I'd vote
1: for me too. It's good to be the king. <laughs> it's good to be the king. <laughs> That should be our object lesson: History of the World, Part One. Yeah, yep. I'm Shane Harris here with my good friends Tamara kaufman Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi. The gang's all here. We're,
2: We're all here. in a while. I'm not going to yeah. be here next week. No, I'm yeah. going to be in uh, the
1: ruins of Jerusalem. What's left of Jerusalem?
2: Well,
3: well it's nice to have a little reunion. This but point, hey, I way.
1: mean, with the city like leveled, and I mean, they, we can be able to have our pick of places to put the embassy. That's
2: right. We call it civil unrest. The Trump administration calls it a building opportunity. U- okay, urban yeah. redevelopment. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Oh boy. We'll have we're more on little, that. Little dark, yeah. A little dark, guys. A little dark. We'll have more on that next week after, because we're recording before uh, the speech has been given. But this week on the podcast, Mike Flynn is cooperating with Bob Mueller's Russia investigation, and President Trump raises more questions about whether he sought to obstruct justice in the probe. Deutsche Bank has been told to hand over information about Trump related finances, and the National Security Advisor tries to make the case that Trump is a modern day Ronald Reagan. Uh, let's start with the Flynn news. Uh, just very briefly, let's let's touch on what we think the plea means, but a lot of that has been chewed over a lot in the past week, and go listen to the Lawfare Emergency Podcast from last week if you haven't. That was a great roundup of it. But I want to get to this question that emerged over the weekend with Trump's tweet about uh, knowing that Flynn had lied to the FBI, which of course makes his actions with Jim Comey. Uh, the day after he fired Flynn, quite different, and then reaction from the lawyers. But Ben, just give us the very quick recap on, I mean, there's been there's been a series of takes on what it could mean that Flynn is cooperating and what's underneath it, but as best we understand it right now, the significance of the plea.
2: Right. So uh, let, let's just say there's two basic versions of this story, right? One is the one that you would have uh, from listening to those of us who were on the Lawfare podcast Emergency edition, which is that this is a very big deal. It reflects a show of strength on Mueller's part. He must have had something quite substantial on Flynn, and we can expect that Flynn is giving something in substantial, substantial in return, i.e., very, very bad news for the Trump administration, uh, or for the Trump White House. The other version, which is, uh, uh, it being advanced by uh, veterans of the Southern District of New York uh, prosecutor's office on the right, Andy McCarthy writing in National Review, who is a, uh, in an earlier life a very distinguished Southern District terrorism prosecutor, and uh, Preet Barara on the left, the former U.S. attorney fired by Trump, both of whom say – Actually, this may reflect weakness on Mueller's part. that He doesn't really have that much more. Uh, and the reason they believe that or that they're hypothesizing that is that it, it is at least normal Southern District practice to make your, uh, your plea defendants uh, plea to the worst conduct that they engaged in and you deal with – uh, you deal with leniency in the context of sentencing, but you don't, uh, in, at least in the Southern District practice, you don't uh, not charge the most serious stuff. And uh, so I think there is a, a genuine debate here. Nobody really knows the answer. We're all kind of stabbing in the dark. Um, and, uh, but that's broadly speaking, the parameters. Here's what's not debated. Um, Mike Flynn was the national security advisor of the United States, admittedly, for a rather short period of time. And he's pled guilty to lying to the FBI uh, while, um, uh, you know, over matters related to the transition's uh, uh, engagement with Russia. And that is a very big deal.
1: Okay. So with that in mind, and we – that was Friday – Last Friday with the plea agreement, uh, the guilty plea came out. Susan, then the next day, President Trump tweets that I had to fire Flynn because he lied to the vice president and the FBI. Of course, we did not know that the president knew Flynn had lied to the FBI. We have subsequently learned from reporting that the White House counsel, Don McGahn, uh, according to someone close to McGahn, says that he did go to the president and say, I think that Flynn may have lied to the FBI when they interviewed him on January 24th, which was four days after they came in office. So the question then becomes, as the president started inching himself towards an obstruction of justice case, I mean, clearly he's speaking to a motive to obstruct if he's saying he knew Flynn lied to the FBI, and then after he fired him, he talked to Jim Comey, then the FBI director and said, please back off of Mike Flynn, right?
0: So I think that things are getting a, a little bit um, confused in the way we were originally thinking about the possibility of sort of the obstruction issue versus what Trump admitted to and why I, I think it's significant. So whenever we originally talked about can the president obstruct justice and, and, you know, is this comment to Flynn, it was in the context of Flynn being investigated for for having these contacts with Sergei Kislyak. And in that, there were a lot of questions about that. First, what was the actual substantive nature of the comments? Second, is it, is it sort of criminal to, you know, is it is it actually a Logan Act violation? I mean, there, there was a lot of kind of mushy stuff going on that made us have to think about obstruction of justice as this sort of uh, a, a, a course of conduct issue, something that that brought in lots of disparate elements. I think by Trump acknowledging, um, and I do think that tweet is an acknowledgement, and it's been later sort of. Although his his lawyer John Dowd tried to take responsibility for it, it appears that the underlying substance is essentially correct. Then you're not talking about sort of an obstruction of justice investigation into, uh, you know, the, the counterintelligence issues and sort of. Well, was there the existence of a of a qualifying investigation and these sorts of things? Now you're talking about the president being aware that there was criminal conduct and directing Comey not to to, to see his way to letting Flynn go. And so I do think that that is, you know, whenever you just think about sort of the essential elements of what the president has to know to even think about sort of obstruction in that limited case, I, I do think that that is a substantial admission.
3: So then, there's the question of whether the president can, in fact, obstruct justice. When which you're a was,
2: star, they let you do it, right? There
3: was this sort of amazing claim put forward by Alan Dershowitz, among others, and, and
1: John Dow, the president's lawyer. Yeah,
3: that the the president, because of his authority over the Justice Department, simply can't. You know what? You know if he's telling Comey to lay off, that that's not obstruction. Um, and I, I'd really love your comments on that. But I think the uh, the other piece of this that um, really came home to me in the wake of the Flynn plea and looking, looking at the court documents was what the lying was about, um, that it, these were two specific uh, engagements that Flynn had with the Russians uh, relating to diplomacy by the transition team in contradiction to the interests and policy of the sitting administration right? And uh, whether it's a Logan Act violation or not, um, it's something that they decided to do, you know, against the policy of the sitting president. And then it's something that he felt he needed to lie about doing. Like if it really was all sanctioned and okay, and there, there's nothing uh, either impolitic or illegal about it, why lie about it? And I'm still just puzzled by how are we supposed to think about the choice to lie to the FBI about these meetings.
1: Yeah, this is something, I, I mean, I, I, we've been talking about this a lot in the newsroom, but, and I'd love to get everyone's take on this, right, but it's it's, it's not, it, it sort of defies the imagination to think that Michael Flynn, who had spent his entire career in military intelligence, who certainly knew the significance of a meeting with the FBI and an interview about his behavior would knowingly lie unless there were a really good reason.
3: Right, right. And also certainly knew the chain of command and the fact that the president is the president until noon on January 20th. And knew
1: that he had been dispatched in these efforts by other people to go talk to the Russian ambassador and to go to work on behalf of you know, downplaying the reaction to sanctions and trying to get the Russians to intervene at the UN on a vote. So what is what is the lying in service of?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I think that this is this is the one shared instinct of all of them so I think there's two things one there's complete revisionist history going on right now that like this was a Trump, this was a trump policy and uh, you know uh, the Obama administration had policy preferences too during the transition and this was a perfectly open uh, thing that Trump could have just said publicly without any issue at the time no this had strong bipartisan support these sanctions had strong bipartisan support it would have been a major scandal um Trump was getting huge pushback from and his- these
1: were sanctions because Cause of the interference in the election, let's exactly,
0: and and let's <laughs> let's take it a step further. It's not you know right. We still don't know precisely what was said about the sanctions, but you know the 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 logical inference at this point it is it's something related to hey don't retaliate. Not just because we're asking you out of the kindness of your heart to not retaliate, but because we are making a representation about lifting sanctions in the future.
3: That there's a quid pro quo, in other words, for the Russian exactly not to retaliate. This
0: would have been a hugely substantial thing at the uh, you know a sort of political story at that moment in time and so I think that they're lying because one their instinct is to avoid the political inconvenience they understand that it's going to be you know a, a really really negative story that's going to continue to bog the president down right in this period when they're all concerned about sort of uh, you know lack of legitimacy because of a uh, Russian election interference and then because I think that they you know I, I think again and again if you look at Kushner's behavior and Flynn's behavior I think they, they think they're acting with you know impunity that they now Trump is going to come in and they they're the, they're the big guys in the room, and, and they're going to be able to get away with anything. And so they don't care. They don't feel sort of constrained by this notion that you need to be honest and forthright with, with federal investigators.
1: Go ahead.
2: Well, all right. So first of all, I will reiterate a point I made a number of weeks or months ago on rational security, uh, probably at the time of the Papadopoulos uh, hearing uh, plea, which is uh, – you know, a whole bunch of people got interviewed in January, February uh, by the FBI before this investigation was a big deal, or at least before they thought it was a big deal, before Comey had announced it publicly. Uh, and we have now have two pleas from people who have acknowledged that in the context of those initial uh, uh uh, interviews in, a, in an early phase of this investigation, they bald-facedly lied to the FBI. And I think the, the single most important question right now uh, is, who else was interviewed in this early phase and was basically everybody lying to the FBI? Well, we know
1: some time. who were interviewed.
2: Yeah. And I think those people, the people... Before people realized that this thing was really serious, I think a lot of people probably weren't entirely candid with the Bureau. And I think this creates a a pool of people who have uh, potential uh, uh, pleas to enter now. Uh, and I, we've already seen two, and my working hypothesis is that there are maybe other people who were not entirely candid with the Bureau. Can we also,
1: theory. just as a, as a quick side point, also assume that perhaps there were people who were truthful in their interviews with the FBI and that that then helped the FBI establish what actually happened? I
2: think that's almost certainly correct. Um, so the, the second point is on this question of whether the president can obstruct justice, the... President's lawyer and frankly Alan Dershowitz as well have thrown up a lot of smoke around this issue. Um, the actual answer to this question is uh, in most areas not disputed that is the President can obstruct justice in exactly the way that everybody else can with respect to witness tampering with respect to um, you know interactions with the judiciary with respect to uh, paying hush money, right both Bill Clinton. And Richard Nixon faced plausible criminal jeopardy for this kind of uh, obstruction of justice. And uh, there's no serious legal question that the president can obstruct justice in that fashion. Uh, The hard question, and it is a very hard question, is whether and to what extent the president can obstruct justice using only otherwise valid exercises of presidential authority to manage the executive branch. So firing the FBI director is something he absolutely has the authority to do. Um, Directing an investigation is something that he has the authority to do. And there is a legitimate question whether those acts alone can constitute obstruction of justice. Uh, as so it all
3: comes down to the intent with which he took those actions. So then. I think
0: this is the point that, that doesn't sort of right this this argument that, well, as long as he's using sort of it's the valid use of, of his constitutional office. Well, that's true for for anyone in government. Right. So you can accept payments if you do it for a corrupt purpose, for improper reasons outside the scope of what you're authorized to do. It's bribery. Right. I mean, sort of that the notion I think that the only way that 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 argument holds up is to say that the scope of the constitutional authority is such that there's no such thing as a corrupt or improper purpose. That just seems plainly wrong.
2: No. So I I I agree with you that the hard version of this thesis, as articulated by Josh Blackman and um, and less carefully by by Alan Dershowitz, is, has got to be wrong. And the example that I used in a lawfare piece yesterday was imagine that the president has a case before a federal judge that he really cares about. Let's call the judge, oh, Judge Curiel. And imagine that Judge Curiel's daughter is a staff attorney at the Justice Department. And the president gives Jeff Sessions a directive, promote that Woman at every opportunity, and imagine that he sends that woman a note that says, I'm taking care of you, so your dad will take care of me. Right? So all he's done is used his power, his lawful power to uh, promote somebody, which is, of course, the same power as the power to fire the FBI director. I find it very hard to accept that that would not be an obstruction of justice if done with specific intent to influence a particular judge's handling of a particular case. Uh, that said, it's a serious question, and and uh, the president's lawyers uh, would have a serious argument on this issue. And for exactly that reason, I do suspect that Muller and his people will be quite careful about an obstruction case that doesn't involve any activity that isn't a core presidential function.
0: I, I mean, I think in some ways, the strategic question is more interesting than the legal question here, because we've actually seen this exact pattern sort of play out over and over again, which is originally the White House team and sort of the, the, the president's team defend him on factual grounds. That didn't happen. The thing you say happened. It just it didn't occur. It's fake news. It was all sort of. It's made all Comey lies. Exactly. Jim Comey lied about it. Um, you know, and then all of a sudden we move to you know so so we saw this with collusion right there was no communication there was no i've never seen a russian in my life you know like i have, have nothing to do with any of this and then it moves to You know, collusion isn't a crime. And now, once again, I I do think that they've sort of they've tipped their hand a little bit here in I think kind of jumping the gun strategically on moving quickly from you know he didn't obstruct justice as a factual matter to he can't he can't obstruct justice. (laughs) So let's just all move on.
2: And by the way, even if he can't, if even if he. Can't obstruct justice for criminal law purposes. It is still perfectly within the competence of Congress to say you engaged in a pattern of obstructive behavior that is inconsistent with your being in office for purposes of the impeachment clauses. Right, as
3: clauses. a pol- as a political matter, they could still judge him to have done so. And then
0: sh- that's why Shane should be president.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I've been saying this for vote minutes.
3: Shane.
2: I, I even know you, your bumper sticker should just say Shane exclamation Shane Shane! <laughs> <laughs> that's,
3: that's got a good track record that way.
1: Mm, yeah. Maybe, mm, maybe I'll rethink that way. Maybe just Shane period. Yeah. Shane. Shane. <laughs> It's, it's good. It's mark. sober. No, it's Shane. An adult. no,
3: Shane is the answer to any everything. So it's just Shane. Period.
1: Maybe it should just be Shane comma, and then you fill in the
3: blank. <laughs>
0: How about Shane colon?
1: Shane colon.
0: <laughs> Our services are available for hire if is yeah. interested in running for office. Political messaging geniuses.
1: <laughs> All right, let's move on to uh, another big story uh, <clears throat> that broke on Monday. Um, Deutsche Bank, uh, the... Wait a minute,
3: Shane. You're what? not going to do this with a German accent? Yeah, you you did it. all the Russia stuff with a Russian
1: accent. Oh, Deutsche Bank has received a subpoena <laughs> from a special counsel, Robert Mueller, <laughs> concerning people or entities affiliated with President Trump. <laughs> I don't think anybody actually heard what I said. It's yeah. just me my- going
2: question is, should we all respond with German <laughs> accents as well? Do you think
1: the subpoena is a big deal, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so Deutsche Bank. I'm not going to do it anymore. Uh, they, they do business outside Germany. Uh, Deutsche Bank received this subpoena earlier in the fall uh, from Muller concerning, this is an important point concerning people or entities affiliated with President Donald Trump. There have been some early reporting, including I will say in the journal, that seemed to indicate that it was Donald Trump's accounts that is not the case. We, we have since corrected that. Uh, and the White House pushed back pretty hard on the idea uh, that um, reports about the president's personal financial records having subpoenaed were incorrect. But it is a our, uh, our reporting now that the bank received a subpoena regarding people or entities affiliated with Donald Trump. Uh, And the Spina requested documents and data about accounts and other dealings tied to relationships with President Trump and people close to him. Now, this is important in the outset because Deutsche Bank has lent more than $300 million to entities affiliated with Trump. That's based on public disclosures. And really, Deutsche Bank is the only major bank that was willing to do business with Donald Trump and has a history of doing business with him, with his companies, with some members of his family. Um, The red line that Donald Trump had set, right, that he said that he thought Mueller's investigation would be going too far, is if it were to veer into his finances and his business dealings. Well... It appears that it is going into his finances or at least entities associated with him. So is this Mueller taking things, A, in a new direction, and B, does this portend a potential conflict with the White House over the scope of the probe? Anyone? Anyone?
3: Well, so I think as a political matter, you know, there there are the process crimes, if you will, that we've been talking about—obstruction of justice, lying to the FBI, all that kind of stuff. But for a lot of uh, political activists, whose fundamental view of this president and his family in office is that they are corrupt actors, they are there to enrich themselves there in other words, there's a hunger for a story about the relationship between Trump and the Trump organization's personal finances and the actions of the president in office and i so I think that um i'm I that none of that speaks to why Bob Mueller would have issued the subpoena, but it does speak to why this story was such huge news, and you know I, I I think there there are important questions that, you know, in service of the country, you would want to either exclude these possibilities or figure out what's at the bottom of them in terms of private business, private interests and public interests and the intermingling between the two, whether it has to do with the debts of the Trump organization or the questions that have been raised about Jared Kushner's, you know, failed investment on in that building on Fifth Avenue and the money he's been seeking to keep that alive. So, you know, I just as a citizen, I would say I'm glad Mueller is doing this because I think it's important for us to either put that piece of the puzzle away and say it's not relevant
0: or know what's there. I mean, I do think there is one point that's sort of important to to return to in some sense, and and that's that the president does not determine what is Mueller's proper jurisdiction or not. Um. So the way this works is the Rosenstein um, order gives Mueller sort of a particular mandate over, uh, you know, broadly speaking, over the investigation that Comey was talking about in congressional testimony, plus anything that's sort of necessary to answer those questions and anything arising out of that, uh, that inquiry. Now, that's not a jurisdiction mandate. It doesn't mean that, you know, Mueller can now investigate anything his heart desires. But there is a process in, in DOJ regulations by which when the special prosecutor, uh, so the special prosecutor determines essentially his own jurisdiction, when he reaches a point at which um, there's a question about jurisdiction, a question whether or not he should continue to, inv- to investigate something, um, he can either uh, refer a matter uh, to main justice for other uh, other you know uh, places within DOJ to investigate, or he can request an additional additional jurisdiction, right? Say <clears throat> he can go to, uh, to the Attorney General or the Deputy Attorney General in this case and say, hey, I need more jurisdiction in order to fully answer the question. Um, and there's actually, there's there's a process, there's a process for making that request, and there's actually a process for in the event that there is a conflict, right? So he requests this of the Deputy Attorney General and then doesn't get, uh, the Deputy Tra- Attorney General doesn't agree to give this additional jurisdiction. There's a there's an obligation to notify Congress about the fact that there was a request and sort of a uh, that that was declined. So, <clears throat> I think a little bit this notion that Trump just gets to proclaim what is appropriate for Mueller to investigate and not investigate that that's just wrong. And and he can sort of say it as much as he wants. Now it might we might get into an interesting question if we do right if Rosenstein does in fact say you aren't allowed to investigate this issue. But but the the actual conflict or or the the even remotely relevant legal conflict only occurs whenever there's a conflict between those two people. We've seen absolutely no indication about any kind of conflict between you know Rosenstein and Mueller on this issue. That's the relevant point. So, I mean, look, maybe it indicates that that we're getting closer to the point where Trump just decides to fire Mueller, which I think we all understand is is a possibility or risk that is untethered from whether or not there's justification to fire Mueller. But I, I do think it's worth sort of reminding people that this is just a Trump talking point that has nothing to to do with anything, you know, except for the extent to which it sort of signals his own thinking about wanting to fire him yeah,
2: I think all of that is exactly right. Uh, and I would just add to it uh, two things. One is that um, um, it is a very strange subject of a criminal investigation who has the ability to fire his prosecutor. And so when Donald Trump says what his red lines are, um, what he's really saying is these are the lines that if crossed, I might consider using this nuclear power that I alone among criminal subjects of a uh, investigation have. Uh, has. Again, it gets into that land when you're the president, they let you do it, right? If, if you're a star, you get to decide who your own prosecutor is um, at some level if you're willing to take the political heat for doing it. Uh, the second thing is that it is utterly absurd for people to think that there was ever a chance that Mueller would not look at these underlying transactions. Of um, if you are investigating, this is not a, a detour from the core stream of the investigation. If you are looking at Russian influence in the 2016 Trump campaign, understanding Russian leverage through prior business dealings uh, over with the Trump organization, with Trump personally, with uh, members of the uh, extended Trump community, uh, is a core piece of that investigation. There was never a chance it would not happen. And, um, And people are being either uh, very naive about the way major investigations work, or willfully misrepresenting it when they are suddenly surprised that that Mueller might want to know what Central Asian oligarchs are sending money to the Trump organization. Come um, out you know, like
1: really? Yeah, I feel like this is the most basic aspect of any investigation. I mean, it's whether this is apocryphal or not, but it is. It's what deep throat told woodward it's follow the money i yeah. mean of course he's going to look at his bank and, account and if
2: you are going to if you're trying to understand how certain russians with a lot of money like like deripaska for example or you know ended up engaged with people in the Trump organization and Trump campaign in 2016, you want to know the entire history of their interactions with the Trump world. Full stop, end of story. It That that investigative inquiry, it would be malpractice yeah. to conduct this investigation without asking those questions.
1: One thing I thought was interesting about this in our reporting, what was revealed was that you know there have been requests, particularly from Congress, to Deutsche Bank before to hand over records about President Trump's accounts and, and his in his arrangements with the bank, and the bank has resisted that because it wasn't a it wasn't a subpoena. They were essentially saying, the "Bank is absolutely right. Right, give that, you have to way. give us a legal order if you want us to do this." The subpoena we understand came in the fall, which could be sometime around September, October, November. So it's fairly recent. I, mean, I don't I don't exactly know what to make of that. And I think we should be careful not to read too much into it. But we know that, for instance, the Manafort investigation into money laundering was well underway before Bob Mueller ever came under the scene. And we saw the considerable forensic heft that went into that indictment. This is apparently a new request. Now, maybe it's to augment something that already happened, but this is a fairly recent request to specific accounts dealing with Trump. That signals to me it's at least possible that this is a new development uh, or something, some new piece of information that is prompting Mueller to go down that road. So,
2: a couple, a couple thoughts on that. These are very speculative, but, um, but, Mueller. One thing he has done. And that you can really see most clearly in the obstruction context is that he's proceeded extremely methodically and he's done things in a particular order. In the obstruction context, he basically did no interviews until he had collected a whole lot of documents. Right. Um, And so I think it is reasonable uh, to expect that there is a very specific order of operations going on in each of these investigative cones. And that leads me to think that either this subpoena is about specific accounts in response to specific questions that have arisen in one of those cones, or that we've reached the point in the investigation where you're going after a whole bunch of categories of financial information. Um, that that would be all I could sort of guess based on current circumstances.
3: So what I'm taking away from this conversation is, as as you've remarked before, in particular, Ben Mueller knows a lot more than we know, and we don't know what he knows. Yeah. Um, and number two, this is nowhere near over, right? Um, no, but it's all going to be over in three weeks by the right, right around right, the turn of the year because Time Cobb said us. it was yeah. going to be done by Christmas. Baghdad Cobb, right? <laughs>
0: mustache is full of secrets. <laughs>
3: Didn't the
1: actual Bagdad Bob have a really nice mustache too? He did. Yeah. Yes.
2: He was Just awesome, saying. by the way. For those of you who are not old enough to
1: remember. Oh. Awesome
3: in weeks. a in a really gruesome way. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um,
1: right, let's move on to our third topic. Um, the Reagan Forum, the Ronald Reagan National Security Forum, was held at the Presidential Library in Simi Valley last week. Uh, this has sort of become an annual gathering of mostly conservative, but not entirely, right? Tomorrow, I mean, foreign policy and a
3: It's a defense conference. Yeah, very focused and, on defense. And it's gotten pretty high profile yeah. pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, it sure has. Uh, and to that point, um, H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor, was there laying out. The previewing, I think, is more the way put it, the Trump administration's national security strategy. Uh, and and in it, the National Security Advisor went to great lengths to draw parallels between President Trump and President Reagan in terms of their, as he put it, their sort of parallel foreign policy beliefs, ambitions, and strategies. Um I take it a lot of people found that to be a somewhat risible comparison.
3: <laughs> yeah, it was. Fa- I mean, it was a fascinating outing in a number of ways. Um, and we've we've discussed on the podcast before, sort of what role McMaster is playing in sort of um, representing on behalf of President Trump to the public. Uh, and this was another example of McMaster really sort of um, putting for putting. Uh, very glossy lipstick on the pig of a really incoherent Trump Foreign policy. Um, Of course, that's what a national security strategy always does for an administration is sort of take all the disparate parts of its foreign policy and wrap it up and tie it with a ribbon and explain how it all fits together. Um, But I think that in the case of this administration, there is such a jarring divergence between what McMaster described the policy as and what the policy actually looks like. And then, of course, claiming the mantle of Reagan. was risable not only from the perspective of what's the administration's foreign policy approach and what was Reagan's but also just who is this man and who, you know and how is Ronald Reagan viewed amongst conservatives and especially national security conservatives and how you know that that comparison really fell flat but i think you know some of the, some of the things that McMaster laid out are sort of um they almost sound like the National Security Council staff engaging in its own form of wishful thinking mm. about Trump foreign policy. He, he laid out four components of the national security strategy that is due to be released um, before the end of this month. He said that it's, um, it's about understanding four areas. First, the values that define our nation. Second, the full instruments that define our power. Third, the threats facing our nation. And fourth, the dynamic and competitive nature of our security environment and on each of those points he compared the Trump administration to the Reagan administration but of course when it comes to values you know Reagan had a clarion call Trump has essentially abandoned Reagan's sense of values in foreign policy and so it was preposterous full instruments that define our power McMaster went on at length about diplomatic capability at a moment when the administration is slashing and burning the State Department and um, It was the last two that were more substantively interesting. McMaster defined uh, threats in terms of, number one, revisionist powers, Russia and China, where we see the Trump administration actually acquiescing to Russian and Chinese preferences on a number of issues. Uh, And then non-state actors or rogue states and terrorist movements. So Iran, North Korea, Hamas, Hezbollah, ISIS- you know, that's kind of core Republican foreign policy. And then on the fourth piece, the dynamic and competitive nature of our security environment, that to me was where Trump doctrine really shone through. And we saw this in the, in the op-ed that McMaster published earlier this year as well, that fundamentally this administration does not see the world as um, dominated by a liberal international order that the United States and its partners created and that sustains our power. Fundamentally, they see global politics as a king of the hill game. Right now we're on top. Russia and China are scrambling to get up there. Even our partners are... Competitors with us economically and maybe in other terms later on. And so we can't trust them and we shouldn't look on them as full allies. And, you know, it's all just a sharp elbowed uh, war of all against all. It's a very dark view of the world. It's actually a, a diminished view of America's role in the world and American power given the unparalleled predominance that we still have in global affairs, economically and militarily and so on. But it is very, it's a very consistent dimension of Trump's approach to the world. And I think it, that was the one piece of McMaster's um, kind of rollout that struck me as sincere and consistent and also very, very worrisome.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, Mc- kudos to McMaster and Dina Powell for somehow managing to like find some connection between their bosses. Erratic and incongruent sort of uh, policy instincts, and and trying to sort of come up with this consonant strategy. You know, one of the things I think is is interesting is how obsessed they are on sort of um, you know cloaking themselves in the mantle of Reagan and, and sort of trying to convince people, notwithstanding the facts, that this this really is traditional Republican positions because um, that's when the Republican Party was last at its zenith, right? Wait, it was- but considering sort of the Trump popular blow it all up sort of a thing I i, I'm, I am a little bit um, I, I guess not surprised but I, I just find it notable that instead of sort of forging through with this you know bold do Trump doctrine that casts off you know everything that comes before they continue to try and sort of go back to no 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 you know this is this is the same or this is the logical continuation of sort of that, Re- that Reagan view
1: I'm fascinated by that too by this constant need to invoke Reagan and I'm also fascinated by why there is not Maybe it's because it's not as politically fashionable to really embrace more George H.W. Bush. I mean, it seems to me that if you were looking –
2: But they they actually – they actively –
1: Uh, they, hate Bush. they hate the
2: bushes. Which they're, they're, is that, amazing. That gets into the personal side. Yeah, of Trump. It's more
1: the personal because I mean, if you're looking at George H. W. Bush, here's the person who oversees the end of the Cold War, does not dance on the grave of the Soviet Union, is given great credit for that.
3: Right. Doesn't overextend. Doesn't you know send troops into Baghdad, for example.
1: Precisely. I mean, Mr. you know, marshals faint. this coalition of forces to Al Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. I mean, there's there's some. It seems to me if you're looking at Reagan, there's there. I mean, it, yes. I mean, I get the sort of Reagan as the, <clears throat> is the political figure and why that's so appealing to to republicans but there's this constant need to kind of go back and i think in many ways distort what reagan foreign policy was actually about which is not to say i'm trying to criticize it but we give it all of these attributes and give it all this credit that i'm not sure it really deserves and we leave out a lot of the other uh, controversial and and the other thing that
2: people forget about (laughs) you know uh, or the, the fans of reagan do not forget but the Trump people seem to forget is how relentlessly optimistic he was, Yes, you know, and, you know, the whole, like, like in the Poo- face
1: of reason often. Yeah. I mean, yeah.
2: like, you know, he, he believed, uh, in an activist foreign policy to roll back communism, right? He believed that whole shining city on a hill thing. He believed that, you know, and, you know, to the to the extent that you're um, invoking him as pure realism or <laughs> pure like power politics, that was an element of that. But it was in the service of, you know, international liberal foreign policy yeah. objectives. It's you know, also of sorry, precisely guys. the type mm-hmm. that these guys have contempt for.
0: Right.
3: But but see, this is I I think to the extent that we see Reagan as someone who had a, a uh, an ideological message of ringing clarity, but whose actual policy didn't always live up to it, which is, I think, a fair reading. You know, I, I think the Trump folks would probably take that, which can be said of almost any administration, and say, see, what we're doing is no different, <laughs> right? right. Um, uh, so when he, McMaster used uh, the example of Trump's speech in Riyadh, Uh, And calling out violent extremism as an example of Reagan esque application of American values, where, as Josh Rogan pointed out, it was actually an incredibly cynical situational application of American values. But the Trump folks would say, well, Reagan was situational, too. You know, and so we're, we're no different. Everybody's just as dirty on this. And I, I think that not only do they betray Reagan's fundamental optimism, and I agree with you completely on that, they have a very, very dark view of the world and a dark view of American power yeah. and a, a dark view of American capabilities. But in addition to that, they have a very dark view of human nature. They think we're all dirty. And, uh, and Reagan actually was always trying to appeal to the better angels of our nature. Mm-hmm. Even if, you know, people thought that he was being insincere, I think there's a lot of evidence that he was sincere. Right. And look, th- and, and, and at
2: the end of the day, I mean, look, my enthusiasm for Ronald Reagan is not overwhelming. I'm not a, a Reaganite. I'm, you know, he's not he's, – I'm not one of the people who, you know, saw Reagan and discovered neoconservatism. Um, but –
3: uh, I, I saw Reagan and went to anti-apartheid demonstrations. Yeah, so, you know, like, you
2: know, that was not the political <laughs> movement that I was from um, by any means. And yet there is just no doubt that Ronald Reagan had a vision that he talked about all the time of the world as better. And it was not there was no component of America first. There was no I mean, it it was an internationalist vision and it was an active one that, you know, sometimes took him into dangerous territory, like, you know, supporting Jonas Savimbi against the the communists in Angola and supporting the Contras. And but this was this was an activist visionary foreign policy. Uh, I don't. I can't tell what's the activist vision here, except insulting uh, Kim Jong-un. and, and um...
3: Well, I, I do think the activist vision here is about economic competition. And, uh, and the economic dimension of American grand strategy always gets played down in the national security strategy. But I think that um, that is the part that's closest to Trump's own heart and his own worldview, is that it's a dog-eat-dog global economy. And uh, and so you don't play nice with other countries. You compete against them and you compete hard. And it doesn't matter if they're your friends in other ways. And, you know, the echoes of this or rather the the reactions to this are already becoming quite clear. Uh, Rex Tillerson, the secretary of state, was in Europe this past week Um In Brussels and uh, meeting with the German foreign minister. And it was very, very cold. And it's very clear that the message that's starting to emerge from our European partners is we can't really treat the United States as a partner anymore. Um, You know, they're treating us as competitors. And so we have to treat them the
0: same way.
1: All right, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, Susan, you want
3: to go first?
0: So mine is a is a brief one. Um, it is the Twitter thread uh, or the, the sort of the, the Twitter timeline of um, Rebecca Johnson, who's the, the dean of academics at the Marine Corps War College, um, and over the weekend went to a professional conference and brought her a very very cute newborn. I guess not newborn. She's at not this a point. newborn. A couple month old yeah. baby at this point, um, and sort of tweeted about um, you know bringing a baby to an academic conference and really got. a a lot of you know her. Her followers are definitely of a heavily national security community group, and, and got a lot of very, very strong and mixed reactions. And um, I just think it's a it's a really, really interesting, thought provoking um, sort of conversation that she started about uh, what it means to make space for women in in national security and, and in academia. Um, and as we sort of are having this broader conversation about, you know, gender parity and and um, and better sort of diversity and, and gender policy issues as one way to combat some of the harassment type issues. Um, I, I really think that this is an issue that, uh, that people, and especially in people in this world uh, who aren't inclined to think about, should think about sort of uh, uh, the connection between welcoming women into the national security community and e- embracing motherhood in, in the national security community. So I would um, point everyone to her uh, to her Twitter and, and read a little bit about sort of uh, how she engaged in that conversation.
3: Oh, here, here! I thought that was such an interesting back and forth that she had with a lot of her followers. I thought she made some great points, and I also have to point out that Rebecca Johnson, among other things, is a fellow Georgetown PhD and a former Brookings predoc.
0: Nice. There you, there you go. go. All in the family. That's yep. right.
1: That's right. Uh, my object. I'm going to recommend to readers. This is a, a really fascinating story that my colleague Nancy Youssef wrote in the journal this week. Um, Nancy had this observation that. Uh, She kept hearing foreign policy people saying Kim Jong-un is a rational actor, whereas we like to think that maybe he's irrational, he's Rocket Man, he's hell-bent on destruction, but no, the, the predominant use means that he's rational. So she asked the question, why? <laughs> and she actually went and interviewed the people who have been influential in making that decision in the intelligence community uh, and just came up with some really interesting observations. I'll just share a couple um, that military and intelligence officials that she talked to said their conclusion that he's rational doesn't mean that he is brutal or provocative and that he's even considered immature and brash. Of course, he killed members of his family, and last week he tested another missile that I could probably reach the U.S. And Nancy writes, but finding the finding means the U.S. sees someone who is methodical and driven by a desire for world recognition, securing his family's dynasty, and developing his nation economically. Quote Rational actors have real goals and they know. How to get there based on reality? A senior U.S. intelligence official explained. He hasn't demonstrated anything that would make one reconsider his rationality. It's just a really interesting way. Window. So he into, really
3: wants recognition. Hmm. Family. He wants his family to succeed, hmm. and he wants the country to be economically prosperous. It sounds so huh. familiar.
1: Unthinkable. <laughs>
3: I, I actually
2: read that story, and I, I thought that story was really encouraging in a lot of ways. Yeah. That you know, if you, uh, you know, I forget who on the Lawfare podcast, whether it was Steph Haggard or Mira Rap uh, Hooper, but um, one of the two of them in a conversation that I had, sort of with them, emphasized that uh, the uh, the basic structure of deterrence on the Korean Peninsula is sound, um, and the thing that could make it very unsound right is if the actors in question are not behaving rationally that's where a sound deterrence becomes amenable to real accident and, and difficulty. And so the idea that uh, the idea that kim jong-un, brutal, evil, horrible, stalinistic as he is, uh, is not completely nuts in his international action and not and can be expected to respond rationally to things i actually found a very encouraging um uh, little bit of news and i thought nancy's piece was was provocative and interesting and valuable just for sort mm-hmm. of floating that
1: yeah yep all right well that brings us to the end the end is here
3: no. No. Whatever alarmism <laughs> we may have about moving the American embassy to Jerusalem, I don't
0: believe it. are optimists, are Reaganites. Don't yeah. worry, it's just
1: the end of the podcast. <laughs> world <laughs> rational security is a production of lawfare you can find our show page someplace on the internet
2: <laughs> <laughs> by the end of the year like sort of i'm going to be tight off about this but around the end of the year that the original show page will get integrated into every, every time i you know like i stop it. So, all right it's time to move the show page it's time to you know move the show page onto lawfare you know bob muller like, does something, does something, and I just haven't had a moment to do it. I think it Bob yet.
1: Mueller clearly like wants spaghetti on the wall <laughs> to remain. I don't know what he's up to, but he has a plan.
0: He's a rational actor. He's definitely goal. a rational <laughs> and actor a way to when it comes it. to our
1: show page. You can tweet us at RATL security. We are definitely rational actors. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you leave a d- uh, download the podcast, please leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out, and we appreciate it. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music. Was performed this week by Robert Muller and the subpoena stocking stuffers. <laughs> <laughs> it's, oh, very, it's very good. Shame. You have been served.
0: <laughs> you sound like the bad guy in Indiana Jones. The, yes, that's my my, my my
1: my German accent is purely like maniacal Nazi. <laughs> Why don't you tell us where this Tony's? Um, no, actually, Sophia Yan, who's definitely not German, did the music. No. Definitely not true. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wiz, Demora Coffin with us, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. Guten Tag! <laughs>
2: <laughs> hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods,